We're in the Gospel of Luke right now, and there's tons to get through, uh, and it's thick stuff. There's a lot here, so I'd encourage you to to jot stuff down, especially if you're going to use it again in community groups this week, which I hope you will. You know, in the spirit of being amazed each and every week at the absolute relevancy of Scripture in our current times, um, this is yet another week that just speaks right into the dramatic season of life that we're into. When, when we dreamt up the idea of The Good Doctor as the series title for the Gospel of Luke, we never imagined that, uh, that the whole world would be desperately united in finding a cure for an invisible disease and that we would hear from Dr. Fauci every night on our news uh, and that we would have medical ideas and cures and search for, for things going on. Uh, but here we are. Um, secondly, so today we're talking about the return of Christ and the end of the world as we know it. Does this sound relevant at all to you? Uh, these are apocalyptic themes that I think two months ago would have sounded distant and hypothetical, but all of a sudden today feels really relevant, feels really much like this is uh, just immediate. If you grew up in the church like I did, then end times are scary times. Um, it was the 1970s for me as a kid, and it was ultra freaky. Now, the fact that there was a lot of unruly hair and a bunch of mustaches uh, didn't really help. That made it extra frightening. Um, but movies were used in the 70s to sort of scare kids straight. And I used to go to this thing called Kids Club on Sunday night uh, over at Las Gatos Christian Church. And for me, what started it all off was this movie. Uh, it was A Thief in the Night. And this movie had, uh, just like all good uh, apocalyptic end of the times things, it had a series. It had more movies that were to come. And there was three in the Thief in the Night movie. Um, and uh, and these, these movies just utterly terrified me. They, they, they really freaked me out. They, they tried to take the story of the end times and, and move it over. Now watch for this transition. This is the appropriate apocalyptic end times transition to this slide. Here we go. Fire! There we go. Um, the more modern version, of course, is the Left Behind franchise, uh, which has both Kirk Cameron and Nicolas Cage looking somehow both epic and confused. Um, again, in the spirit of just a long series of, this is the end of the world. No, this is really the end. This is the end. The book series had 13 books depicting the end of the world. Uh, so why is it scary? Think about this fact, that the word Advent and Apocalypse have very, very similar meanings, but they stir incredibly different emotions. Advent means arrival. And we think Christmassy, devotional, snuggly worship vibe, um, you know, oh, holy night and all that, right? Apocalypse means appearing. And yet not so snuggly, scary, powerful vibes going on with that. If we understand who Jesus is and why he came, what we see is that he hasn't changed at all. Both, of the, both the arrival and the eventual return are fulfilled prophecy and kept promises. So in other words, both of these are actually really, really good news. 
Now, Christians don't have a market on end-of-the-world type movies. Remember way back in the day when people actually went to theaters? Well, when they did that, kids, if you don't remember that, you can Google it. It was like two months ago. Um, but when people actually went to theaters and, and, and paid good money, good money was spent on apocalyptic-themed movies. Now, normally what happens is there are aliens or corrupt international governmental societies, and there are secret plots that unsuspecting civilians have to band together to foil. Here's the general trajectory when we think about the end of the world. Generally, things keep pointing to the world going from bad to worse, which is consistent with a biblical worldview. And it actually counters a humanistic evolutionary worldview, which says that given enough time, um, the weak are eliminated, and through knowledge and science and understanding and advancement, we as a human being will figure out how to get along. We will advance past sort of our current human frailties and limitations, and we will one day sort of, sort of evolve beyond that. Think mutants, right? Think the X-Men. There's another series with tons and tons of movies, um, and, and, that's, and that's not what, what the Bible describes. You know, people get strange talking about end times, and strange people talk about end times. Uh, A large dose of humility when discussing the return of Christ, and a large dose of curiosity would serve us really, really well. This morning's kind of filled with don'ts, so let me give you two two don'ts that are not in your notes. That's a tongue twister, but here's the first one. Um, Don't ignore what is to come. Uh, Jesus talks about this more than anyone else, and he indicates, uh, or or he initiates conversations about his return, about things that are coming, about judgment. And so so he's not shying away from it. There's a lot written in Scripture about what is to come. So don't just ignore it. And here's the second one. Don't obsess over it. So don't ignore end times things because it's scary, it makes you, your, your brain hurt, people just argue and so you're just going to ignore it, but also don't obsess over it. First of all, because if you obsess over it, you will be that guy or gal that never gets invited to parties anymore and you wonder what's happening. Well, it's because you keep bringing up end time stuff and it's kind of bothering everyone. Secondly, it's because your salvation is not dependent on your end times understanding. Think about the thief in the cross, which we looked at at Easter. What was his end times understanding, right? I think his end times understanding, his eschatology, the sum total of it is this. We're all going to die, and I want to be on this guy's team. That's it. That's kind of his eschatology in a nutshell, okay? And Jesus assures him, you're good. So your salvation does not depend on you getting all these pieces just right. These are side issues. These are non-salvation issues. We don't ignore them, but we don't obsess over them. So today we're looking at when, where, and why is Jesus coming back? And again, I just can't think of a more relevant topic to be considering when when the worldwide conversation um, is pondering current events. This is a news article that came up um, that an estimated 300,000 people could begin starving to death daily. Listen to this. 
in multiple famines of biblical proportions within months amid the coronavirus pandemic, warned head of World Food Program David Beasley. He goes on to describe the coronavirus pandemic as the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. Things are shutting down and canceling in such a way that, uh, unlike it's ever been seen since World War II, So here we are living in times. I'm hearing the word of biblical proportions more often now from from a wide segment of of talking heads and society than I can ever remember. Let me warn you that today's message is going to be confusing, uncomfortable, and reassuring. Okay, Put all those in a blender and mix them up. That's the smoothie we're drinking today. It's going to be those things because that's what the text is. The text has all those things in it. Here's what I've called this morning. I've called this morning Surprise Party. Um, We had a 12-car drive-by a couple of days ago, and two months ago, you would all say, oh, let's pray for Dave. There was a 12-car drive-by. That sounds scary. But of course, today we know what that means is we were just cruising by someone's house to wish them happy birthday. So Maureen, so fun to get in on that little surprise and be there to see you in person and... um, and freak out your neighbors. I actually got to chat with a couple of your neighbors while we were waiting to, to drive by your house. So fun to be a part of that. In fact, it was so good to see people. We, we met up in a parking lot, and here's all these people from church. We're all safely in our cars, and, and uh, I almost just pulled out a loudspeaker, stood on my van, and we almost just had a little worship service right there. Revival almost broke out at Big Five. But uh, so, so the surprise party is going to hearken to that a little bit. It's a little bit like that. Um, and, and yet there's, a, there's a, a double meaning which we will get to. Jesus makes it clear that the sequel to his first arrival will mean very different things to different people. And there's two camps. The first camp means this. Surprise party means parte, as in good times with good company forever. That's what's coming with the return of Christ. The righteous will be with Christ That's the party. But here's the double ring of surprise party. Party also uh, is a word that means a group gathered for a specific mission. Think about a search party or a rescue party, right? What, What the return of Christ will mean for the wicked is something altogether different than what it will mean for the righteous. A detachment, squad, or detail of troops are assigned to perform a particular mission, and that day is coming. Listen to the party or group that is promised to return. Uh, if Think SEAL Team 6 for a second. If you think SEAL Team 6 being deployed to exact justice on something sounds a little bit scary or frightening, if you're on the wrong end of that party, you're, you're, you're sort of starting to, to tease into what's coming. This is from the Gospel of Matthew. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, listen to this, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Do you see in this text, there's glory, there's a posse with him, and there's a throne. Jesus came to earth as a helpless baby, but he's promised to return as a ruling, fearsome, beloved king. 
Jesus came in obscurity, but he promises that he will return in prominence. He came undercover and many missed the point, but no one will be confused upon his return. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has already covered the fact that he's going away and even that he's coming back. Um, and, And he does this several times. Think layers of paint on a wall, right? Teachings don't just need to be given once and say, well, I told you once when you were five years old, how come you don't still know it? Because people grow over time. Situations change. And we just forget. So Jesus is going to go over with the second coat some themes that we've already touched on. We've already looked at some of these things. He wants to teach and convince his disciples. And when I say disciples, I mean then and I mean now for us today. He wants to convince and teach them of what is to come because of this one important fact. That what we believe about the future determines how we live in the present. This was a key theme from from weeks and weeks ago now when, when he was discussing the end times. But, but this is why this is so important to Christ. Now, this is true in the short term. It's also true in the long term. Think about short term for a second. Why did Peter deny Jesus Christ right at the night of his betrayal? Well, because he believed in the future, the very near future, that big, powerful people were going to do to him what he saw them do to Jesus. So he denied him. What he believed about the near-term future informed the way he lived in the present. Why is Peter such a transformed person? Because his beliefs changed, right? Solidified for him was that Jesus really did conquer death. He saw the risen Christ. And so his belief about the future altered. And so he was made courageous, right? Because of what he believed about the future. So, so this is how th- this, this impacts the very near term, but it also impacts the long term. And our beliefs can change over time. Don't turn there, but in Luke 12 is when he first starts talking that, to his disciples that he'd be going away and that he would be coming back. And guess what? It kind of freaked him out. Kind of like me as a kid in the 70s. It freaks him out. Where are you going? When's it going to happen? How's it going to be? What, what's going to happen to me? These are the questions that come to mind. Here was the big idea from that message. It was that we are to stay ever ready, right? We are to keep the lights on for the master's return. And we walked through this text that said his return will be delayed, so we should be patient. His return will be a surprise, so we should stay awake. He's coming back to judge, and he's coming back, and it will be fair. So if you want to go back and listen to that, you can go back to our podcast. You can check out some different passages. You can just read it for yourself and let the Holy Spirit teach you. This morning, Jesus is going to build on what he has already taught, and I have framed it in four don'ts. These are warnings from Jesus. Is the Christian life a bunch of do's and don'ts? Not really, not fundamentally, but are there do's and don'ts? Yeah, just like in any relationship, my kids, I have some do's and don'ts with my relationship. Is that the sum total of of, of what it's all about? No, not really. You're missing the point. But four don'ts that if we are hearing Jesus, we're receiving the warning that he's giving to us. Uh, If you want to, you can click on the little PDF below and have a printed or digital form uh, that you can use. Otherwise, you can go old school and just jot these things down. What I want you to notice is this. Um, This passage that we're going to look at is actually bookended by... um, Actually, I haven't told you where we're at. 
surprise, in case you haven't noticed this, Luke 17, we're going to cover 20 to 37. Okay, Luke 17, verses 20 to 37. Um, in this passage, it's bookended by two questions. Hey, when is, when is this kingdom of God? When are you coming back? That's asked by the Pharisees. And then the disciples ask the question, where are these things going to take place? So Jesus has asked two point-blank questions at the start, when, and at the end, where. What I want you to notice is this. Jesus doesn't answer the questions directly. In fact, he actually takes the spotlight, their gaze, what they're fixated on, and he shifts it elsewhere. Okay, So just kind of watch for that. We don't even know the right questions to ask about these things. And so, um, and so Jesus steers us by his answer, and, and there's sort of like implied teaching of, of what we ought to be focused on. All right, here we go. If you're taking notes, write this down. Don't overlook the kingdom among you. Okay? Don't overlook the kingdom among you. Uh, among you. Don't miss the real Savior. He's not the Savior you imagine him to be. Look at verse 20 in Luke 17. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So the Pharisees ask when the kingdom is going to come. Jesus answers by correcting their false expectations. You're not even looking for the right things. Now remember, just contextually, the world Jesus inhabited. Who were the power brokers? Who were the talking heads giving the opinions, giving the advice on, on, on you know, social influencers? Here they are. It's the Romans who are ruling, so that's political, and it's Pharisees and Sadducees. It's, it's theocratic rule. So it's religious leaders and Roman rulers. Okay? Those are sort of the, the twin heads of the Jewish people that are occupied by Rome right now. And so, um, so when, when, when the, the kingdom of God is thought of by the Pharisees, uh, here's what they're looking for. They are looking for a kingdom that makes them the sole power brokers. They're in charge, but everything they do has to kind of go through the, the Roman authorities because they're bigger and more powerful and have more mighty and arm, uh, more, more arms, so, so to speak. And the Pharisees want to twist that. They want to flip that. In fact, they would love to see Messiah come and boot the Romans out completely. So again, getting in the heads of people who are in power in sort of the theo- theocratic uh, wing of, of, of voice and power, that's where the Pharisees were at. It's a case of making the Savior out in their own image. Whenever you see someone else making a mistake, by the way, you you, you ought to not just have a prideful heart that says, see, they're doing that. You ought to investigate your own heart and say, wow, I wonder if I do that. I wonder if I make God out to be in my own image. They rejected Jesus as Messiah precisely because he was nothing like them. Um. Blaise Pascal says this, God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. You know, every age does this. In the 60s, Jesus might have been thought of as a a hippie agitator, right, who dropped out of societal norms, became a social critic, and he was this countercultural messiah. 
Uh, one of our elders at Valley Church uh, told me about sort of the, the, the Christian version of a commune that he got saved in. And, and so his picture of, of, of who the hero Jesus might look like was, was shaped very clearly by the, by the time he lived in. How about the 80s Jesus? The 80s Jesus would have been probably a yuppie, a prophet of pros- prosperity, upwardly mobile, driven, purposeful, and successful. In, in his book, Still Proclaiming Your Wonders, author Walter Berghardt says this. Listen carefully. In a foxhole, Jesus is a rescue squad. In a dentist chair, a painkiller. On exam day, a problem solver. In an affluent society, a clean-shaven and, uh, and middle-of-the-roader. For a Central American gorilla, a bearded revolutionary. Yet Jesus refuses to be remade in our own image. People want a Jesus that they can cope with, one that confirms their own preferences and their own prejudices, but aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't give people what they want? He doesn't give you what you want. He doesn't give people what they want. There's something really fascinating in the Gospels, and that is this, that Jesus disappoints, confuses, and frustrates both his opponents and his closest followers, those who've left everything to uproot their life and follow Jesus, are just as confused, just as disappointed, and just as frustrated at times with Jesus as anyone else. Here's maybe a little soul-searching for you this week. If you are comfortable with Jesus, if whoever comes to your mind when you think of the name Jesus Christ if he never counters you, crosses you, frustrates or confuses you, I would suspect you do not have a biblical, historical Jesus in mind. You have a God in your own making in mind. So there's implied little lessons here that we don't miss what's already been revealed, what's right in front of us. Jesus was not the Savior they imagined him to be. His return and his whole kingdom, everything about it, is going to completely surprise them and us. Because right now we see dimly, right? Sort of like little reflections. We can kind of piece things together. It's not lost. Rob Rob mentioned this already. It's not lost that it's really ironic that they are talking to the king of the kingdom about the kingdom. And because they don't have eyes to see, because they are dull of hearing, Jesus doesn't give them much. He gives them just a tiny little bit of what is there. The kingdom of God isn't observable like earthly kingdoms. Remember yeast and seeds? Those were were metaphors Jesus introduced to talk about the now and later kingdom. That that there there are things already here, present, that the kingdom is working and they will take fruit and root later on in bigger and bigger, ever expanding ways. You know, my life right now is utterly filled with yeast and seeds. Uh, we, have, we have taken a, a whole bunch of extra time that we have, and we have a vegetable garden going, and we have all kinds of beautiful plants going everywhere. We are a family, typically, that knows how to raise and grow children really well, but we tend to kill plants, um, and I'm glad that's not inverted. Uh, we're really good at kids. We're kind of terrible at plants. We're not green thumbs at all, 
But we have extra time on our hands, so we're doing all of these things. And, uh, and last night, we're, we're getting ready for bed, and my wife says this. She goes, oh, man, I've got to go down and feed the sourdough uh, starter. I'm going to butcher what that is, but you know what I'm talking about, the, the little starter part of the dough. She had to go feed it. And we just both crack up thinking, you know, we have enough things, like living things to feed and nurture and care for and make sure they don't get injured, that now we're adding not only a ton of plants, but sourdough. So we've given it one week. We're going to give it one week, but we're not going to keep feeding the sourdough. That seems a little ridiculous because we can pay other people to feed their sourdough and then eat the bread that comes from it. This is, though, my daily reminder that seeds and yeast have this ever-growing, ever-expanding thing, and all of a sudden the kingdom of God is just in this giant explosive way, and it's been here all along. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Literally, it was right in front of your faces. Church, wherever the church is uh, present, wherever the gospel is preached, the kingdom of God is in that place. That's what's so powerful. Uh, and, And not only is the kingdom of God in that place, the kingdom of God is missed. The kingdom of God, even when it's preached clearly and has a good presence, the kingdom of God is missed by people in locations. So now he turns to his disciples and he gives a lengthier teaching on his return. Because those who have ears to hear get an earful from Jesus. So he kind of expands on it. Here's the second thing. Don't be duped by secret knowledge from secret people. Don't be duped by secret knowledge from secret people. If you've been around the church at all, you know about secret knowledge from secret people and end times. Man, those things just go together like peanut butter and jelly. His return will be a surprise, but it will not be a secret that he's back. And that's what Jesus is trying to free his disciples from. Listen to verse 22. And he said to his disciples, so he's turned from talking to the Pharisees now to the disciples for the rest of the passage. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. I'll say this again. People get strange talking about end times, and strange people tend to talk a lot about end times. You know, one of the job hazards um, of being a pastor is I regularly get people cornering me and soliciting me to agree with them on their pet theological stance. And the nuttiest of all the nuts in the jar are the second coming type of people. The word eschatology means the study of end times. One theologian called these people the, uh, the, the eschatomaniacs, right? Because that's just all they ever see is end times related things. And, and they're just obsessed with it. Now, I tend to distrust people who want to show me their homemade timelines and charts about the end times, because most people who are hyper-focused on one aspect of doctrine are, are either one of two people. They either go off and start a cult, or they are hiding some gross sin. The longer I live, the more I see this to be true. People who have one issue, they always want to talk to me. What are we doing about this? What are we doing about that? If I ever talk to them about other things, they're like, I don't want to talk about that. They are a cult leader or they are hiding something else. 
they're not in relationship with Jesus Christ. I just got done reading Daniel, the book of Daniel, and the book of Revelation. It just so happens to be in my reading plan. That was my April. And there are some strange things in there. I was encouraged when I read the end of Daniel, which has some wacky, crazy stuff in it, that Daniel ends with Daniel saying this, I don't understand. What does all of this mean? And this is the guy who was given the vision. So, so if you don't understand it, you're in really, really good company. Jesus is letting us know something really simple. It's going to be as obvious as when lightning lights up across the whole sky. You'll turn to someone and say, did you see that? They go, yep, I saw it. It was kind of hard to miss. Now he gets super obvious and pointed about the immediate future. One of the challenging things about all of this is, is this talking about right now? Is this talking about next week? Is this talking about in my lifetime? Or is this talking about in some other age to come? That's why humility and curiosity can work well together. But here he goes. Listen to verse 25 about the immediate future. But first, here's timeline, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Who's he talking about? The son of man is Jesus's favorite name for himself. Okay, it ties back to messianic prophecy. So he's talking about himself in the third person. But first he, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, I have one event on my timeline. Before Jesus returns, Jesus has to go away, okay? So you want to see my homemade timeline? There it is, okay? We've got Christmas, we've got Jesus leaves, and at some point in the future, Jesus is coming back. That prerequisite is told to us by Jesus Christ, and it's fulfilled, And it implies this, it implies that we are one day closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we ever have been before. Now this leads us to an urgent warning uh, from learning from people who've gone before us. Jesus now shifts our attention somewhere else. And here's the point if you want to write it down. Don't wait. Don't wait. What does that mean? It means his return is not your wake-up call to get right with God. So don't wait on this. There's urgency. Jesus is going to bring up Noah and Lot. Here's my question to you. What, is, what, what does Jesus have in mind by bringing up two figures from, from, their, from their history? Noah and Lot. What is he driving at? Here's what I think. I think both of these warn us that like a game clock winding down on some kind of a sport we might be playing, time will one day be up and the time to act will be over, and it happens in an instant. That's what I think he's driving at. I will read the passage in just a second, and you can see if you agree with me. Jesus comes to earth 2,000 years ago. That was his rescue party. That was his search party. He came, he formed a little group, and then he sends them out to continue to rescue, to continue to search, to continue to the, the work that Jesus Christ came to do, Right? It's the fireman shouting, turn or burn. Well, that hurts my feelings. The fireman's not trying to hurt your feelings. The fireman's not giving you barbecue advice. The fireman is saying, clear is kind, and there's urgency here, and you have to come with me right now down this scary ladder, or you will die. That's the message of prophets. That's the message Jesus came proclaiming. So right now, we are living in the season of time 
when we are to be on a rescue party or a search party. And that is if you're not yet rescued or, or, or found, then your action item is to get on that team to figure out what's the message and do I believe it or not. Now, there is a party coming back. It's Jesus and his angels. It's a different kind of party. This is the one that's going to come and bring judgment to the wickedness on earth. It's going to bring justice. It's going to bring redemption. And a part of that, a part of that setting all things right is the judgment of Christ. So we live in the part of the story in which we respond, yes, to Jesus and follow him to safety. Verse 26, listen to Noah. Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. This whole idea of eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage is just a euphemism for saying life was going on like normal. They were carrying on like any normal day, and then the rain came and started, and the promised judgment that Noah had been faithfully and patiently not only preaching, but talk about the ultimate visual, right? He's building an ark in his front yard for years and years and years. He really believes this. And once the rain comes, judgment comes. So the day for waking up and getting right for God is when? It's before the rain comes, right? The day for getting right with God is before the rain comes. That's the message of Noah. Game clock is going to go out and the time to act will be over. Listen to Hebrews 11.7. Hebrews 11.7 is the, the great hall of faith chapter and it mentions Noah. By faith, Noah... Being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, future events, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 28, let's move on to Lot. Likewise, Luke 17, 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Life was going on as normal. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Do you hear this sweeping language? So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus is interpreting his own teaching. He has said that before. Now he's applying it directly to Lot's wife. What's Lot's wife all about? Well, Lot's wife is the one who, instead of singularly focused, is making their way, eyes on salvation going this way. She repents, which literally means to change your mind and turn around. She repents the wrong way. She turns back and says, man, look at this life I'm leaving. And what happens to Lot's wife? She's turned into a pillar of salt. She is caught in the judgment. Because now is the time before the fire rains down, before the water rains down. 
Now is the time to get right with God. The return of Christ is not the time to say, there's my alarm, now I'm going to get right with God. It happens before. Deciding in advance to run to God. Some of you have heard this story before, but it's too perfect not to share right here in this context. I'm leaving work. I used to work. In fact, the, the, the church that helped plant Neighborhood Bible Church um, is up in Cupertino, and I was leaving work one day. I was in my, my 1987 Jeep, and I was driving down Highway 85, and as I was approaching my exit, which was Saratoga Avenue, I'm driving along, and I'm losing power. A van pulls up next to me, and the passenger of this full-size van is out of the window to his waist, and he's waving wildly. This is what it looked like. Hey! And he's pointing like this to my Jeep. And I'm driving along, and I'm kind of losing power on this little gradual upslope. And in my brain, I thought the only thing that would cause a person to react that way is if I'm on fire. Well, I knew I wasn't physically on fire, so I assumed my Jeep must be on fire. I take my exit, Saratoga Avenue. This van goes all the way to the bottom of the Saratoga Avenue exit, heading south on 85. Some of you know that, that exit. They are now running back towards me. Okay, so, so this seems like a serious situation. Here's what I did. At that moment, I get out of the Jeep, and here's what's sitting in my Jeep. My laptop, my newly formed uh, iPod, this, this new technology that was there, um, a little earpiece that allowed me to talk wirelessly on my phone, uh, my phone, my, my, uh, my little personal device that kept my calendar. These were all different uh, objects back then. All the most expensive trinkety type stuff that I owned was sitting in that Jeep. And as I stepped out of the Jeep, for a split second, I thought, man, I should grab my stuff. And I thought, nope, I'm getting away from this thing. Every single car explosion movie came to my mind where it just goes, right? So I got away from the vehicle. In a matter of moments, I watched my windshield melt in front of me. And the second most expensive thing that I owned, which is my Jeep, our, our minivan was probably the most expensive thing. I watched it all melt before me. Now, when I look at that, and when I think about that, I think about this. Had I turned back, now it didn't explode in a grand fireball, but had I turned back and valued my stuff more than my life and something were to have gone wrong, I would have been exactly like Lot's wife in that moment. In an instant, I made the decision. I said, you know what? My life's more invaluable than my computer. And I stand by that decision. Some of you may argue it. Once the fire started... I only had time to get out. Here's the point. The day of waking up and getting right with God is before the fire starts. Right? It's before it starts raining down. That's the point of Noah and Lot. I close with this. Jesus speaks about separation, and he minces no words about it. The fourth thing is this. Don't think that all will welcome Jesus. That's a lie. Jesus will come for all, but it won't look the same for all. Jesus is coming back for everyone, but there's different results. Look at verse 34. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken up, the other left. There will be two women grinding together at the grain mill. One will be taken up, the other one left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures gather. God is patiently giving sinners time to repent. That's the season that we are in. In fact, Jesus is a kind of ark that saves us. Baptism, Peter uses this in 1 Peter. I think I've put it in your notes. 
But we get in Christ the way you would get inside of Noah's Ark. There's one sure way of salvation. It's up this ramp. Yeah, but it's smelly in here and there's animals. Yeah, but consider the alternative. Getting inside Christ is not to have a comfortable life in this life. It is the way of salvation. It's safe passage through certain judgment. Those who are in Christ go with him. Those who are not receive their just reward. What Jesus pictures here is that even the closest, most intimate relationships of family, right, two in bed, and those work associates, those that you are with every day, there's going to be separation, even in the same household, even in the same office. You know, a beloved phrase for us as Americans is, and justice for all, and justice for all. Man, we love that as Americans, don't we? But when you stop and think about it, justice may not be what people really want. Remember that every single person you ever meet feels morally superior to someone else. And usually someone who arrogantly says, why doesn't God judge wicked people? They find themselves on the morally superior side of that equation. The answer to that is this. Well, what if he did in this moment and began with you and your wickedness? All of a sudden, being fair and being just isn't what we want in the moment. We want a way out. And yet, God would not be good if he were not just. Justice either came for us on Jesus at the cross, or justice comes on us from Jesus in the end. Let me say that again. Justice either came for us, on Jesus at the cross, or justice comes on us from Jesus in the end. That's a brilliant little sentence that I didn't come up with. It may be Tim Keller, but that really rings true for the passage today. There is a party coming on some appointed day, and the mission is really clear. Here's what I want to leave you with is action on your part. Where we are in the story really, really matters. At his first arrival and resurrection and ascension, things we celebrate around Easter time, the, the kingdom is inaugurating. It is, is inaugurated. It begins the restoration process. And there's a future date when it will be made complete. So think about this. You live right now between inauguration and restoration. And in this in-between season of inauguration and restoration, there is difficulty. There is trials. There are temptations to go, what's going on? Where'd he go? Is he keeping his promises? Today is the day to make sure, like the thief on the cross, your eschatology includes, we're all going to die. I want to be on that guy's team. That's a good starting point. How do you do that? You take Jesus at his word, and you simply trust and obey what he says. That's what a follower of Christ is. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, you believe him, and you let your present actions back up that you believe it. The good news of the gospel is this, that your best isn't good enough, and your very worst does not disqualify you. This means you can stop trying to impress God. It means you can stop trying to barter with God. It means you can stop cursing God or running from God. The good news is that you can take his hand and follow him to safety.
Just before we sing, I leave you with our one another passage this week that's so fitting. And it's both a comfort to your own soul, but there's a strive where you shelter component to this. Church, we ought to be encouraging one another with these kinds of words and ideas. Listen to it from 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Here's the action item. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Church, let's sing together. Thank you.